Tanya Marsh, and you're listening to Death at Set. I want to thank everyone who's listening for your support of the podcast so far. I've received a ton of positive feedback, and I'm grateful for your engagement and your questions. I've received a number of questions about some of the topics discussed in my interview with Dan Isard, which was episode three, and Caitlin Doty, which was episode four. So I sat down with my friend and colleague, Rebecca Morrow, to record today's episode in which we discuss funeral and disposition planning in the context of estate planning. If you aren't already super knowledgeable about death care, then this episode will hopefully give you a lot of good information and answer some of your questions. We will dive into some deeper detail about many of the topics covered in this episode in future episodes of the podcast. Rebecca Morrow is a graduate of Santa Clara University and Yale Law School, and she earned her LLM in taxation from the University of Washington School of Law. Rebecca is a professor of law at Wake Forest University School of Law in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. She practiced family law and tax law in Seattle and did some estate planning in her years of private practice before coming to Wake Forest. Rebecca is a talented teacher and a good friend, and I'm so grateful she agreed to help me out with this episode. thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. So you've practiced both tax law and family law, and you teach courses in those subjects at Wake Forest. And as you know, I teach decedents, estates, and trusts and funeral and cemetery law at Wake Forest. So between the two of us, I thought we could do a pretty thorough job of giving listeners an introduction to funeral and disposition planning. And I think about funeral and disposition planning as a component part of estate planning, because You know, when a person dies, they leave property, they often leave debts, sometimes they leave dependent family members, and then, of course, we all leave our own remains. So holistically, estate planning coupled with funeral and disposition planning can take help take care of all of those things that are left behind. But from your perspective, from a tax law, family law perspective, what are the pros and cons, if any, of estate planning? Well, for very, very high wealth individuals, tax planning can be an important part of estate planning. But for the vast majority of us, tax planning is really beside the point. The estate tax exemptions are high enough that most of us don't even come close to having a federally taxable estate. So uh, for many of us, for me and most of us, the primary considerations that result that Um, guide our estate planning are family considerations. So what do you mean by family considerations? Well, when a person dies, most of us do not know what that person's uh, specific desires are regarding their property and debts. Mm -hmm. Many of us will have desires to leave our estates, our assets, to family members, but we may have charitable interests, we may have non-equal distribution interests to give to family members with greater need, for example, in greater share. Um, And so it's really a gift to your family to think about this in advance and say, these are my wishes clearly documented. There's no need to worry that you're not carrying out my wishes. Right. And, you know, we're sitting in my living room right now and I'm looking around And another thing that occurs to me is even if we, say, split my estate 50-50 between my children, the courts that handle estates look at property on their value basis, right? And sort of property is fungible. It's whatever it's worth. That's how they would generally decide to divide it up. But I have artwork. I have antiques. Right? I have things that have sentimental value and that both of my children might not value equally, And then, of course, there's always the worst case scenario. I don't think I have anything worth fighting over. But, you know, sometimes children and other family members fight over what they're going to get out of their share. So if you leave an estate plan, then you can sort of delineate 
who gets what, right? Totally. And I think that is a really loving, lovely thing to do, to think specifically about what of your possessions are meaningful to other people. Yeah. When I was a little kid, I was an early death positivist, I would say. Nice. Because I decided that turkey basters were pretty cool. And so I walked up to my mom, <laughs> turkey baster in hand, said, can I have this when you die? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and she said that I could. Oh, that's wonderful. I Are you keeping an eye on that turkey baster? Do you know where it is today? She may have already broken that promise. Mm. But no, that's absolutely true. The, the court will, of course, look at an, an estate as just a net number of dollars. Right. But by estate planning, you can make sure that assets are either um, transferred to the person who has the closest attachment to them, Mm -hmm. or that they're shared by multiple people, or that multiple people have various rights of use to them. Right. And, you know, a lot of people do that in informal ways, right? So my grandmother, I remember a couple years before she uh, died, she she would have us go around the house with post-it notes and put post-it notes on the things that we wanted. There you go. Perfect. Of course, I didn't get any of the things that I put post-it notes on because she had forgotten she had already (laughs) (laughs) given said item to somebody else. But, you know, it was a nice idea. Um, This is probably a good time to mention that post-it notes are not an enforceable way of distributing property, nor is, hey, mom, can I have that turkey baster, (laughs) right? Neither of those are legally compliant. Um, So maybe this is a good time to talk about... how how you actually do leave a will, and then what happens if you don't. So if a person dies without a properly executed will, and what a properly executed will is depends upon uh, the state where you reside. And so everybody should go talk to a lawyer who's licensed in their state uh, for more information about that, because there can be a, a quite a bit of variety between the states. But if a person doesn't leave a properly executed will, their property and debts will be dealt with by a court through a process called intestacy. And then the person or people who receive any money or property left over after all the debts are satisfied um, are determined by statutes that set forth what we call intestate succession. So usually spouses um, and children get first dibs, and then we go out in concentric circles to other blood kin, like parents, siblings, nieces, and nephews, cousins, etc. If a person dies without any kin, then their property escheats to the state. The state ends up getting all of their property. The law in North Carolina used to give all of the escheated property to the University of North Carolina, which I thought was We great. don't like that. <laughs> As Wake Forest professors, although to be fair, Wake Forest is a private institution, so it's unlikely that North Carolina was going to give us anything. But uh, yeah, that, that statute's been broadened out a little bit. But generally, property escheats to the state, and that's used for sort of public purposes. Now, if a person doesn't leave uh, properly executed funeral and disposition planning documents based on the law of the state in which the person died, then a similar process occurs. But it's important to note that for estate planning purposes, that is what happens to my property and debts, the law that's relevant is the law where you live, where you're domiciled, right? Uh, where your house is or you spend the majority of your time, etc. But the, the law that matters... Um, for funeral and disposition planning is the law of the state in which you happen to die. And of course, unless we never leave home, we don't really know where we're going to die, which can create um, some problems. And if you're interested in the problems that that uh, can cause, I've got some references and links in the show notes uh, that people can check out. But And we can talk about that in a future episode, but it's a little out out of the scope of what we want to talk about today. So if um, a person doesn't leave behind any properly executed funeral and disposition planning documents, um, then state laws that are similar to intestacy statutes will determine the priority of kin who can control the remains. If a person's married in every state, um, the spouse is has first priority. They can decide. Um, if a person wasn't married but they had children, then either all the children together unanimously or a majority of the children or a majority of the adult children, just depends on the state law, um, they'll make the decision and then so on. to the same kind of concentric circles we have with intestacy. If a person dies without any kin, uh, then the process is similar to escheating of property. The disposition of the remains will be determined by, in some states, it's an interested person, which could be a funeral director or it's the state itself. 
And in every state, the estate of the person who died pays for their own funeral and disposition. Um, it's a debt that has primary priority, so it's paid before any other debts and before any property is distributed. Okay, so two questions here. Yes. I would assume that very few people have documents saying what we want to happen to our remains. Is that correct? I wouldn't say it's very few. Um, There there are a lot of estate planning attorneys that do funeral and disposition planning as part of estate planning. Um, And then also we can talk about pre-need planning in a couple of minutes, but um, an increasing number of people are doing pre-need planning, which are enforceable is an enforceable way of leaving your wishes. Hmm. Cool. Uh, if a person dies without property or without enough property to pay for their funeral, then what happens? So that's also a matter of state law. And either the state or the county is going to pay for cremation or burial in a pauper cemetery. So for example, in New York City, Hearts Island is a whole potter's field um, where people who die without any resources are buried. In many states, uh, the go-to is cremation rather than burial. But in a number of states, um, because of laws that date back to the 1840s, The remains are first going to go to a medical school or a mortuary program um, for use in an anatomy lab or an embalming course. And after the remains are used by the school, then they'll be cremated or buried uh, at public expense. That seems wild to me. Yes. The idea that I would, without voluntarily uh, making the donation, end up on a table with a bunch of white coats around me. Yes. I'm surprised by that. Do you want to know why? Yes. (laughs) So, uh, well, I mentioned that those laws date back to the 1840s. What was going on in the early part of the 1800s was you, you know, we were teaching in medical schools with gross anatomy labs, right? Um, And of course, we didn't have refrigeration. Yes. And so students had to go through quite a number of cadavers to get through their education. Yikes. And uh, most Christians in that time period believed in the doctrine of literal resurrection, so they didn't want to voluntarily leave their remains yes. to science because they felt like that that would jeopardize their chances of salvation. So we had a bit of a cadaver problem. So we had a bit of a grave robbery problem. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, and in fact, well, in fact, most medical schools in the United States and Europe required students to get their own cadavers. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So that created problems. So Parliament in the uh, United Kingdom actually enacted a statute that said anyone who died at public expense, the state had the right to take their remains and give them to um, uh, medical schools for use in the cadaver labs. And the reason they did that was to cut off the demand that was fueling grave robbery. Wow. Um, and then many states in the United States, word for word, copied the statute that had been enacted by Parliament. And so, and today in 2018, we still have laws that are word for word the same as the statute that was adopted by Parliament in the 1840s. That's amazing. Yeah. I do not want my body donated to science. But let's imagine that I did. Yes. What would I do in order to make the donation? So uh, donating your body to science is a really broad category. It can mean a bunch of different things. So the most sort of establishment way of doing that is to leave your body to a gross anatomy lab program at a medical school. And most medical schools have very transparent and above board um, and well-documented programs. And you can just go to the website of your local medical school um, and look for body donation programs and see what they say. Um, Sometimes you have to apply um, and, you know, some medical schools like Mayo Clinic, for example, is going to get more cadavers than it needs. Um, and so there may be some sort of a process there that they pick and choose who they want. But you sign up with them in advance, and then they're alerted when a person dies and they come and collect the body. Usually they have to take the body um, fairly quickly, um, and but it would be embalmed. So you'd have to find out whether or not they'd allow like an open casket viewing or something like that before the remains go to them. Um, but usually they take care of all the expenses with respect to disposition, Um, And then typically remains are cremated um, and then given back to a family member or they're put into sort of a group plot at at a cemetery with 
um, some sort of memorial for the people who have donated their remains, you know, recognition, perpetual recognition of people who've given their remains. Uh, there are also a number of companies now that are responding to the high price of funerals yes. um, and sort of making a deal with people that you can quote unquote donate your body to science and then they'll pay for your cremation. And again, will deliver the ashes um, to the family members or, you know, some other disposition. Uh, there's a bunch of different companies. There's a whole series in uh, Reuters uh, that talked about some of these body donation programs. Again, these are not through universities. These are through, I can't say for-profit companies because they're technically nonprofits, but mm-hmm. uh, anyway, private companies. Um, and I'll, I'll put a link to the Reuters articles up in the show notes um, for more information. But I, those programs make me feel very uncomfortable. I yeah. would not feel uncomfortable with the university donation program. I feel very uncomfortable with some of those body donation programs. Yes. Once you talked about the university-based donations, it actually sounded really lovely. But I, my initial instinct is to donate all parts that could be useful to living persons. Right. So you're talking about organ donation. Yes. Right. And so you, uh, the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act or similar um, acts that are in particular states are going to govern organ donation. So um, that's an important distinction to make, right? So you can give your organs or other usable body parts for transplantation therapy in individual people. That's different than yeah. donating your body to science, uh-huh. right? So you can do both sometimes, uh, not for the university programs. You can't give up your organs and then donate your body because they kind of, they need, they the whole, need them. They need them. They, yeah. they need the whole thing. Um, But right, but you can sort of, uh, you could donate your organs and then go ahead with any of these other uh, methods of disposition that we'll talk about. So if you haven't done that, if you have not uh, already, I'm going to say pre-committed your remains to a university program or a private company program, then when you die, what does your family do? Do they call a funeral director or what do they do? So if a person dies and they're under a doctor's care and the doctor is willing to sign the death certificate, then typically um, if a person dies at home or in hospice or something like that, um, what most people do is they immediately call a funeral home. Okay. Um, if a person dies under suspicious circumstances or there is an accident or they didn't die under a doctor's care, um, then usually the medical examiner, excuse me, or the coroner needs to figure out what the cause of death was and then mm-hmm. sign off, sign off on that. Um, so that, that's what happens immediately after a person dies. I see. Uh, what if you don't want to use a funeral director or a funeral home? Okay. So the question is, it, is that an optional is that yes. an optional Can thing? Can I go without? Well, it depends on, you know, the answer to actually every one of these questions is it depends on the state law, right? Okay. I mean, all the law that we've talked about so far, state planning, funeral and disposition planning, and then all the stuff that we're going to talk about uh, for the rest of this episode is all state law. We There's very little federal law in this area. So it depends on what state you're in. Now, in uh, some states, you have to have a funeral director to sign the death certificate, um, or to sign what they refer to as a burial and transit permit, which is required before a body can be cremated, buried, or taken out of state. In some states, a, a, a minority of states, you actually need a funeral director to conduct the funeral. It is illegal to have a funeral without a funeral director in charge of the proceedings. Amazing. It, that's a little amazing. Um but in many, Has someone brought an establishment clause or free exercise of religion claim against that? Because I would have considered a funeral primarily, for many people, a religious act. Um, no. There have been some challenges to some aspects of the funeral director, um, the occupational licensing laws, and these sort of restrictions on home funerals. Um, in some states, but nobody has brought an, an establishment clause or free exercise of religion hmm. claim to challenge some of these laws. Although I think, I, I agree with you, I think there's some issues mm-hmm. with yeah. constitutionality of some of those restrictions. In the show notes, I'll include links to some good resources on the rules of particular states and some more information about home funerals. Um, if you don't involve a funeral director at all, if you decide through to have your 
you know, your friends or your family or your religious community do the memorialization disposition themselves, we would refer to that sort of generally as a home funeral. Can you, if you have an inclination to at least primarily have a home funeral, Mm -hmm. but your state has rules requiring funeral directors at certain moments, can you just a la carte hire them for those moments? That's going to depend on the funeral director that you work with. Mm -hmm. So some of them are going to be um, quite flexible. So for example, Caitlin Doty was in episode four. Caitlin's a- Love Caitlin Doty. (laughs) Caitlin, me too. Uh, Caitlin's a funeral director in California. Um, Amy, Amy Cunningham, who I'll talk to in a couple of weeks. Amy is a funeral director in New York. Um, they are both, they're just two examples of many, many funeral directors who are very open to as much family involvement as people want to have. And so um, they're, they're completely all about a la carte. Like we'll take the parts that you don't want to do and, and family, you can handle whatever parts you're comfortable with. Um, so if that is something that people are interested in doing, i.e. the home funeral is not an all or nothing proposition, yeah. Right. It's a sort of a sliding scale of what people are comfortable with. Um, but you have to ha- find a funeral director who's going to be on board with um, with that approach and see what they're willing to do. Cool. So I would say, yeah, this is true. The two things that probably wig me out the most about human remains, what will happen to me, to my human remains, uh-huh. is embalming and cremation. Uh-huh. Both don't sound good. Okay. Can you, though, tell me, like, what exactly happens when you are embalmed? The purpose of embalming is to delay decomposition of human remains without refrigeration. Yeah. Right? Uh, Because refrigeration retards the decomposition, just like you buy meat in a supermarket and you put it in your fridge as opposed to leaving it out on the counter. That's going to retard decomposition. Embalming uses a a liquid that is primarily formaldehyde-based. And uh, the general idea, without getting into too graphic of terms, is that you want to replace all the blood in the body with embalming fluid. You're pickled. Well, pickling, generally, you put the object that is being pickled into the brine, Uh right? We're not putting the body into the brine. We're putting the brine into the body. Yeah. Right? We're injecting the... And so they set up a circuit where the embalming fluid forces all the blood in the body out, right? Yeah. And so then it's replaced with embalming fluid. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Do I have to do that? No. But that's just part one. Part two is then cavity embalming. In cavity embalming... A person dies and they ate a meal and the meal didn't go all the way through, right? You've got a lot of stuff in the torso yeah. that could um, become quite stinky, yeah. you know, right? And and um, facilitate decomposition, also bloat. And so they'll puncture holes into the torso and sort of flood the uh, your torso and abdomen with embalming fluid as well. Okay. Just like super basic, why are we trying to slow decomposition? So embalming became popular after the Civil War, and it was used in in the United States. And then the United States really led uh, the popular use of embalming. And we embalm far more than any other people in the world do, right? Uh Um, Now, during the Civil War, it served a really practical purpose, which was if uh, your son died on a battlefield... Uh huh. You know, far away, and you wanted to bring their remains home for burial in the family cemetery. Uh huh. Um, you couldn't bring them home on that hot train. Uh huh. Right? Um, to cross for a several day train journey or whatever. And so, battlefield embalmers would stabilize the remains and retard decomposition long enough to get the soldiers who had contracted for it back home to their families. After the Civil War, um, it slowly picked up in popularity in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, you know, and there's a, a couple of different reasons why I think people started doing it. But the two primary reasons were at the turn of the 20th century, right, late 1800s into the early 1900s, uh, people legitimately believed that it served a public health purpose, that human remains were capable of causing disease, Mm -hmm. that it was unhealthy for us all to be around human remains. And so embalming somehow cleansed them and made them 
made it so that we could be in the same room with them, et cetera. It took care of a public health problem. That idea has been thoroughly discredited by modern science, yeah. right? We, we now understand germ theory, right, in a way that we didn't when embalming began becoming popularized. Uh, the second reason, though, which I think is still a, a reason that people are in favor of embalming, if, if they are, embal- embalming fluid does a couple of things. You know, when a person dies, when any creature dies, they, their skin starts to sink in, mm-hmm. right? Their face starts to sink. They start to retract, mm-hmm. right? Et cetera. Um, they look dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, embalming fluid is designed to be the first step of a process to make a person who is dead look more alive. So for people who have a, a pale Caucasian complexion, embalming fluid um, will restore sort of a pinkness to the skin, Mm-hmm. Um, from the inside out, right? And so you don't look like you have the pallor of death because you're sort of being uh, cosmetized from the inside. And then, of course, um, if a person's going to have an open casket viewing, then makeup is usually applied and things to make it, again, look like a person has uh, a glow. So the idea has been described as leaving a pleasant memory picture of mm. the deceased, mm-hmm. that it's too depressing and disconcerting and hurtful and painful um, for people in grief to look at a clearly dead body that we don't want the last image we have of our loved one to be of them dead. We want them to look like they're alive. So that's the other, I'd say primary reason um, why, why we still do embalming. Okay. Did you say I didn't have to? Um, I didn't say that yet, but you don't have to. Embalming is not required by any law in any state it's not required by federal law. If you want to have an open casket viewing, which many people, because it's just sort of social practice and ritual, want to do, many funeral homes will say you can't have that unless it's embalmed. That's a rule. That's not a law, right? Yeah. So if you have a choice of more than one funeral home and you can find one that is willing to let you have an open casket viewing um, without embalming, and you just sort of depends on whether or not you'll find somebody who's who's willing to do that, then you can theoretically have both. People have home funerals and have viewings, right, with the bodies laid out in their living room. Right. Um, where the bodies are kept cool through dry ice, uh, you know, or refrigeration, but that's less likely in a in a home funeral situation. But many funeral homes have sort of refrigerated morgues and can keep remains uh, cool. Do we have the technology now where you could, say, fly coast to coast to your burial plot without having been embalmed? Uh, yeah, we absolutely have the technology. It's called dry ice. Yeah. Right? Good. You can you can um, take people on the train or put them on. Okay. But the question is whether or not the common carrier is going to allow you to do it. So there are some state laws that require embalming if you're going to cross state lines. Uh-huh. Um, and there may be rules or laws about putting a, an unembalmed body on a common carrier. In fact, um, some, some of the first laws that we got about embalming um, and that burial transit permit thing that I referenced earlier, the reason we have burial transit permits and some of these rules about embalming is because baggage handlers in the 1880s um, got together with funeral directors and public health officials and said, we don't want any more unembalmed bodies being put on common carrier, which in those days was mostly trains. Yeah. Because the baggage handlers were the ones who had to handle unembalmed bodies you know, for many days in unrefrigerated cars across the United States. And understandably, they didn't want to do that. But we didn't have dry ice then. We have dry ice now. Nice. Mm -hmm. So are burial and cremation the only options? In in most states, uh, burial, cremation, and donating your body to science are the only options that you have. In an increasing number of states, and and when I say cremation, I mean the traditional cremation by fire. Uh And you'd ask earlier, you said both embalming and cremation sort of wig you out. Yes. Right? So cremation by fire is a fairly straightforward process. There's like a furnace, right, which we call crematory, and they heat it up quite high, and they put the body usually in um, some sort of a combustible container, it could be like a cardboard casket or um, they actually make and sell cremation caskets now, which are sort of lower grade wood. Um, they sort of slide the body in there. 
then it's a couple hour process and then it all cools down. You're not left with ash. The larger bones in the body may not have completely burned up um, and there could be some large chunks. And so then they put all of those chunks and the ashes um, into a machine that breaks them into a fine uh, finer particles. Yeah. And actually in many states, there's a state law that says you can't give the ashes back to the family until they're in particles that are no bigger than, you know, whatever. So that's cremation by fire. So burial, cremation, and donating your body science are your only options in a number of states. But in an increasing number of states, there's another process, which is known as alkaline hydrolysis or water cremation or aquamation. Um, have you heard about this? No. No. Okay. So in um, what in this water cremation process, rather than breaking the body down by fire, you break the body down by heat, a base solution, um, and water. So the body's placed into a chamber, um, and then there's there's some heat applied, um, and then as I said, a base like acid versus base. Yeah. You know, a basic solution, um, and it sort of dissolves. The body. And what you're left with is very similar to what you're left with after a cremation by fire process. And again, it can be ground up into the finer particles so that you can give it back to the family or you can receive it back as a family. And it looks just like remains that were cremated by fire, although they tend to be lighter in color than mm-hmm. uh, the ashes from, from fire, which kind of makes sense, right? Because they're scorched. So that's that was just legalized in California last year, um, which is a pretty big market for it. Um, I've anecdotally talked to some funeral directors in states where it's legal, and they say that that when families come in and request cremation, yeah. um, they say, "Would you like cremation by fire, or cremation by water?" And that the cremation by water is actually more popular than the cr- traditional cremation by fire. It sounds gentler, right? Yes. Yeah. It's um, also much less. Um, environmentally impactful because, you know, you have to create a big fire that burns pretty hot um, for a sustained period of time. That uses a lot of carbon. Uh, The water cremation process requires less energy. And so, and of course you have smoke from cremation by fire. Now, you know, state environmental laws require scrubbers, so we don't need to worry too much about mercury from fillings being released in the atmosphere, things like that. Uh, But you don't have any of those sorts of emissions uh, issues with the water cremation process. So a lot of people prefer it because um, they believe that it's more environmentally friendly. Is it the environmental winner of the, of the embalming and burial versus fire cremation? Well, I, you know, a lot of people would say that it's the winner. To my mind, it's not the winner. To my mind, green burial is the winner. And this is dig a whole body in. Dig a whole body in. Yes. Uh-huh. And you can put the body in a shroud or a biodegradable sort of a casket. But traditional ground burial, um, traditionally people are embalmed first, right? Yeah. I mean, you don't, again, you don't have to be, but traditionally people are. Then they're placed in a casket. In the United States, about 70% of caskets are made out of metal, um, uh-huh. primarily steel, like auto grade steel. Like think about your car door, yeah. right? That kind of steel. And then placed into a vault or a grave liner, which is made out of, again, concrete or, excuse me, concrete or concrete and metal. So that's a lot of layers in between, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and the, (laughs) right? And the body. So green burial takes out those three barriers. Green burial um, doesn't permit embalming because they don't want formaldehyde leaching into the soil. Right. Um, There's, you can't have a metal casket. Uh, there are some kinds of sustainably harvested woods or other, you know, kinds of materials that are going to break down fairly quickly um, that you could have a casket made of those. Many people just opt for wrapping in a shroud. Uh, and then you can't have a grave liner uh, or a vault with green burial. Green, green burial, I, I refer to it as neo-traditional mm-hmm. because it sounds like this kind of new way of doing things, but it's the way everybody was buried in the United States until about 100 years ago. So why do you think that we have not had that be the default? If you haven't specified otherwise, then we assume that you want a green burial. 
You know, I, I think it's a really interesting question. Why did Americans adopt the funeral rituals and disposition methods that we did? And I'm not, I, I think that's probably beyond the scope of even one podcast episode to try and unpack all of that because there's a lot of reasons. Um, but I, I think that one really important reason is that we're terrified of decomposition, right? And yeah. it's, it's part of the whole death denial thing. So it's like we're putting layers of armor, um, between remains and the inevitable. I mean, if you get into, um, a set of social norms that have you making the cadaver look like it's still alive, there's a certain level of denial there right of the reality of death and so then it's easy to wrap it up in all these in all these other protective sort of mechanisms and if you have the next of kin the surviving family members making the decisions it may be that it's easier for people to process grief at least some people to process grief if they can have the certain level of denial right about the inevitable um but i think the primary reason at this point is that we tend to do things the way that everybody else in our community does them. We're very tied to what our parents did and our grandparents did and all of our other community members because nobody wants to be the person who's holding a funeral for their parent or whoever. And then the neighbors start to say, well, why'd you do this weird thing? Right now that's changing. The cremation rate has just absolutely exploded in this country um, in the last you know, two decades or so. In the 1960s, um, the cremation rate was in single digits. In fact, it was in single digits until about 1980. And now it's at about 50%. That's a pretty significant social change. Because um, that's a pretty significant social change. But I don't know. Those, Those are some of the reasons I think we do things the way we do. That makes sense. Yeah. I think in weddings too, in weddings and funerals, somehow there's a a decision in our minds that spending is love somehow. Yeah, that's that's been an issue for a long time. In fact, in colonial America, um, the legislatures enacted these sumptuary laws or anti-sumptuary laws. I have to look that up. Um, because it used to be a thing that for, uh, especially like in Boston, Massachusetts, back in sort of colonial and revolutionary uh, days, you would give funeral gloves to every mourner. Ah, uh, right. So spending got super out of control and the legislature enacted a law banning people from spending too much money on things like funeral gloves. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, it's not a uniquely American thing, although it's a strongly American thing that we show love uh, at a funeral or pretend to show love, right? For the sake of the community. Right. Um, uh, through spending money. That's that's definitely a part of it. Nobody wants to be seen as a cheapskate. When families are making these decisions, say there's multiple children that together are deciding, uh-huh. how do they go about picking their um, funeral home? And I mean, how many people go and get bids from multiple places? How does that all work? Yeah, so... Hopefully, if you're dealing with kids being the ones to make a decision, they're all on the same page because I think it is the greatest. uh, One of the biggest problems that funeral directors have to deal with is when children are not all on the same page, but the law requires that they all agree or that a majority of them agree. Um, The last place in the world any funeral director wants to be is caught in between feuding family members, which is yet another reason that people should make some pre-planning, right? So that we don't have these sorts of conflicts um, at the time decisions need to be made. Um, but in terms of shopping around, most people don't shop around. The All the sort of studies indicate that the vast majority of consumers do not call more than one funeral home. Uh, they go with the funeral home that they use last in the family or that's recommended to them. Yeah. Um, but we don't go get bids. Now, some of this is because we think that's unseemly. Yeah. Right. Um, and some of it is because people are grieving. Yeah. And some of it is that we just don't know enough to ask questions to help us differentiate between different service and good providers. Um, and, and also because we have this, I think, incorrect idea of the need to get everything done quickly. 
Mm. That we have this belief that human remains are degrading so quickly that we have to make funeral and and um, disposition arrangements immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, we just, and we just need to psychologically, we just need to get it over with. So most people do not do not call more than one funeral home. So it's interesting because if I was planning for my own remains, I totally would. <laughs> well, and that's so that's one of the virtues of pre-planning, yeah. right? So if you're pre-planning, you can, and I think people should, call around. So there's a federal law called the funeral rule okay. that requires all funeral homes to give you a price list. And it's a standardized price list. It's called a general price list. And then there's also a casket price list. Um, so it has the same goods and services. They use the same words to describe them. And then you can compare apples to apples from funeral home A and funeral home B to get an idea of what the price difference is. But I think also people should go and talk to the funeral directors and check out the funeral home, right? And see what their options are and see how, if you're interested in some variety of home funeral, how friendly the funeral director would be to that. If you're interested in water cremation, it's legal in your state, find out if they offer it. You can figure out what your options are by talking to to multiple funeral homes. Uh, and try and get an idea of uh, what you want to do. Pre and, and so then it, you can do pre-planning. Once you've kind of figured out what you want, you can leave your instructions in a binding way according to the state law, or you can purchase a pre-need funeral package. And pre-need funeral packages or pre-need funeral arrangements. It doesn't have to be a package per se. Um, It's not just pre-planning. It's a step beyond that because you're also pre-funding it. Mm. So some people pay cash. And then if you don't want to pay cash, you can usually use some kinds of financial instruments to pay for it. Like you buy an insurance policy where the beneficiary is actually going to be the funeral home Mm. uh, to pay for whatever goods and services that you've pre-purchased. Um, etc. And so many funeral directors are agents for financial services companies and insurance companies that can offer these kinds of pre-planning and pre-need packages. And so that's another thing if you're going to go to multiple funeral homes and talk to them, you can find out what kinds of mechanisms they offer and how much it's going to cost, uh, etc. Now I'm a big fan of pre-planning. I am not a big fan of pre-need um, in terms of pre-paying for funeral services. I think it's a great idea um, and can lessen stress on a family if you've figured out what you want and leave instructions behind in a way that's uh, valid and cuts down on people fighting and arguing at the time of need and, you know, all of that kind of stuff for the reasons that we talked about. Um, But I think that the pre-need in terms of pre-funding are too rigid. There are laws about their transferability but I worry that people are going to move and forget, right? <laughs> you know, or not inform uh, the people who are going to be making the decisions um, where things have been prepaid for. Right. So I think that they can be a little bit problematic and rigid, and they could make sense depending on what your financial and family situation is. But that's something to talk, talk to estate planners um, about. So if I was leaving, so I imagine I've consulted state law and I figure out how to document my wishes. Yes. What would you recommend a person include in their planning? What do you need to tell your relatives about what to do with your human remains? I think it's a good idea to give as much information as possible about what it is you want. You know, when my other grandmother, not the one with the post-it notes on furniture, when my other grandmother passed away, which was a little unexpected, we found out that she had planned out her entire funeral service. She had picked the hymns. She had chosen her pallbearers. I can't remember if she wrote her obituary or not, but I mean, she had really thought through that whole part, right? Yeah. Um, What cemetery she wanted to be buried in, which is where her parents are buried and... um, uh, my aunt who died when she was a baby is buried. You know, I mean, it, that was very sweet. And of course, we did that. We played the hymn she wanted and she had the pallbearer she wanted and all of that. Some people care a lot about that aspect of it. Some people care more about the mechanics, right? I want to have my visitation at this funeral home. I want it to be open casket. I want this particular kind of casket. This is where I want to be buried, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, so I think it just depends on what you want. But I think it is important to sort of methodically go through all the choices. Um, so one of the first choices or one of the first decisions I think people have to make is what kind of memorialization do you want? Do you want to have a, 
I'm going to put in quotation marks traditional because yeah. it's really only traditional in the last hundred years. Uh, open casket viewing at a funeral home, followed by a service either at the funeral home or a house of worship, and then burial or cremation or whatever. Is that what you want to do? Do you want to have an open casket viewing at all? If you're not going to have an open casket viewing, uh, do you want to be embalmed? I mean, I'd tell people that, right? right. That much. Do you want burial or cremation? If you want burial, do you want in this sort of, again, in quotation marks, traditional in-ground burial? Do you want green burial? Or do you want entombment? You can be entombed in a private mausoleum or a community mausoleum. Or do you want cremation? And then if you want cremation, people should really tell those that they leave behind what they want to have happen to their ashes. Because I have talked to too many of my friends who have urns in their house. Mm -hmm. We have a mutual friend who has two and a half people in her closet Mm -hmm. um, because they were cremated, but they didn't tell anybody what they wanted to have happen to their ashes. And so, you know, those things can just linger Mm-hmm. and you want some resolution. So you could have them put in a niche at a cemetery or uh, many churches have niches. Um, that's called inurement. Or you could have them scattered. You can have them scattered in the United States anywhere on private land with the permission of the landowner. You could have them scattered out at sea. You could have them put into a reef. They make artificial mm-hmm. reefs with cremains. So for people like you who dive, <laughs> you can help uh, create a reef somewhere and have fish live in your uh, in in your ashes that have been turned into a reef. So there's a lot of different options, but I think it's better if you're going to leave instructions for people to leave as much detail as possible so they don't have to try and figure out what it is you wanted or to decide amongst themselves. So it's it's a, a, a nice thing to do. It is a nice thing to do. I haven't done it yet, but I'm well, going to. In the spirit of death positivity, Rebecca. Yes. Um, have you given any thought to what you want to do before this conversation? I know you haven't done it yet. I have. You have given thought. I have given thought to it. Um, that reef thing was pretty tempting, Tanya. I yeah. was unaware of the possibility of the reef Well, thing. hey, I'll put in the show notes, I'll put some links to some of the companies That's that a good one. you can create but I a still, that involves that step of cremation, so I think I'm going to pass on that. Well, you know... I know you're in North Carolina right now, but you are from Washington State. Yes. And Washington legislature this year is considering whether or not they're going to have water cremation. Yes. Um, And I have a friend who has a funeral home in Seattle, and he'll take your remains down to Oregon where it is legal. Yes. And do water cremation. So I'm just options. That's a good one. Options. My family has a tradition. Um, People have different, within my family, my family members, people have different things that they've done with their own remains. Mm Mm-hmm. But the tradition that we have um, is sort of like when people um, put some uh, dirt on the casket, right? Uh-huh. Um, family members use their hands to put the first or, or maybe shovels to put the first dirt on. Our family, um, and especially the kids in the family, throw in sand dollars into oh, the grave so nice. that that's shared between all of us, which is yeah. pretty lovely. But anyway, I didn't just come here empty-handed, Tanya. What I did thought you bring? I thought in advance about my favorite um, writing on human remains, and it's in this novel called Martin Martin, which is by Brian Doyle. We'll put and a link in the show in notes. It, yes, yes. I love this book. You cannot walk past me without me recommending this book. I've been pretty into it recently. And in this book, there's this couple, Mr. and Mrs. Robinson, and they have died. They were, they froze to death and um, were green buried Mm -hmm. uh, in Oregon. And in this book, this character, Cosmos, who um, rides through the forest on his bicycle all the time, wearing an orange jumpsuit, um, Cosmos is very connected with Mr. and Mrs. Robinson. And so in this passage, he goes and he visits their grave. And it says, Cosmos is not on his bicycle for a change. He is in his orange jumpsuit, kneeling on Mrs. Robinson's grave. Hers is on the right. He has already worked Mr. Robinson's grave this morning. Mr. Robinson is on the left. That is how the Robinsons moved through the world together when they were alive. And that is how they sleep together now that they are in another form. Cosmos is wearing his orange bandana. He is thinking that Mr. and Mrs. Robinson have produced a stunning crop of tomatoes. (laughs) 
He's done some planting over their mm. green graves. He is thinking that Mr. and Mrs. Robinson have produced a stunning crop of tomatoes. It's hard to get good tomatoes this high on the mountain. <laughs> what with the dusty, ashy soil and the cool nights and the way the sun sears through the thin air, sometimes on wild, hot days. But the Robinsons, by God, have done it with verve and panache. <laughs> you could do better with the basil next year, says Cosmos very gently, but your garlic production is superb. And the tomatoes are just crazy good. I am going to eat two tomatoes for dinner tonight in your honor and save the rest for the wedding. And then he talks to them about the wedding of two of their friends. Mm -hmm. A couple of pages later... <clears throat> talks about a person might uh, lose their marbles and begin as Cosmos is wearing orange jumpsuits and growing vegetables in cemeteries and talking to the graves of friends. And he says to the, the remains of Mr. and Mrs., he says, I'll come tomorrow to collect the garlic, okay? And then on Friday morning for the tomatoes, you keep working on the tomatoes until then. I'm thinking we could try turnips and parsnips after that. I think we can get one more crop in before snowfall. You want to try kale? Think about it. I'll be back tomorrow for the garlic. I miss you awfully too. I miss you terribly. I wish I could hear your voices. I wish I could hear you laugh. I bet that you are laughing right now, right through the tomatoes. These are unbelievable tomatoes. I miss you. Sleep well. I'll be here in the morning. That was lovely. <laughs> that was lovely. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I really appreciate your help on this episode. Thank you. Many thanks to Rebecca Morrow for joining me today on Death at Sec. If you're interested in learning more about the topics discussed in today's episode, please visit our website at www.deathatsec.com to check out the show notes. Please also visit the website to submit any questions that you have, and we'll try to answer them on a future episode. I would once again like to thank David Childers and Riley Sherman for the music heard in today's episode. If you like Death at Sec, I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and give us a good rating on iTunes so that we can continue to get the word out. Thanks for listening! <laughs>